We never did our Pitchfork album pool. Should we know, do it right do now, it. like as our intro? Yes, let's do it right now. So the episode will be out whenever it comes out. But let's do it. Should we do our top five? What we think the top five is going to be? Yes. Yes. Okay. I don't know if I can do top ten, but I think I, I can do top five. I think number five is going to be... I'm going to write it down. Okay. I think number five is going to be Always Blue Rev. Okay. I think number four is going to be uh, Un Verano Senti. Ooh. Bad Bunny. Okay. I think number three is going to be uh, uh, Sudan Archives. Mm. I think number two is going to be Big Thief. I think number one is going to be Beyonce. Interesting. Okay. We have three of the same choices. All right. What do we got? Well, let me... I, like, forgot because I was, I was, like, thinking about this earlier. Um, but then I ran out. So, let me uh, pitchfork B&M 2022. Okay. Yeah. Because they do this thing where, like, they never do it based on their scores. Um, mm-hmm. Like, obviously, the ones, like, I your top three are exactly my top three, except I'm switching them around. Um, okay. Because they all got nines. Yeah. Um, hmm... Hmm. Hmm. Okay. This might be like a little crazy. Okay. This might be a little crazy. Do you think? I think they're going to do it. I'm, I'm going to go for it. Because it's just like too boring to give the smile top five. I think the smile will be in the top ten, but I don't think they'll be top okay. five. So okay. I think number five, because they want to get the gay vote, is Ugly Season by Perfume Genius. Ooh, that'd be a good call. Yeah. So Ugly Season, because I feel like... I don't know about you, but that album... Is like the more you listen to it, the more you're like, this is like kind of a vibe. Um, okay, I like. I it. listened to it like twice, and then I never went back to it. Yeah, it's it's dense. Which I, I was okay. talking about this with Jesus the other day. All this stuff is really dense, even his poppy stuff. Like it's not like easy to listen to all the time. Yeah. Like you can't just like throw Perfume Genius on. <laughs> um, but I think the number five will be Ugly Seasons, or Ugly Season. Sorry, it's just one <laughs> season. Just one. I think four will be always Blue Rev. Okay. I think three is going to be Big Thief. Okay. I think two is going to be Beyonce. Ooh. And I think one is going to be Sudan Archives. That'd be fucking crazy if they give it to Sudan I Archives. I think they're going to give it to Sudan Archives because it's kind of funny to think that their top three is three very different things that are all very important to music discourse right now. Mm-hmm. You've got the big artist who in the you know in the last 10 years, you know, a lot of publications like Pitchfork have been like, "You know what? Actually big pop music is valid and we're going to review it and here comes, you know, Ariana Grande in the top 10, right?" So Beyoncé yeah. for me represents that leg of music journalism. Sudan Archives, young, new, alt R&B, experimental. Yeah. She's like a young black woman making interesting music in 2022. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. It sells itself. Then you've got Always kind of a comeback for a, uh, a band that's been around for enough time to be considered like, you know, one of the great indie bands of our time. But they're still not like they're not like Beach House. They're not like Animal yeah. Collective. Right. Like they're they're always. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like or not, not always. Sorry. This is Big Thief. Big Thief. Same thing. Literally everything I just said applies yeah, to Big Thief. Same thing yeah. to Big Thief. I think it would be boring to give Big Thief number one. Mm-hmm. I think Pitchfork knows that it'd be boring to give them number one. So I think they're going to give it number three. Then I think they're yeah. going to think, hmm, 
we could give it to Beyonce, but then everyone's just going to like clown us. Like, yes, the internet will love us, but like serious music journalists are going to be like, oh, this is like the Jean Dealman of music lists, you know? Yeah. Like, this is like you, <laughs> this is like you trying to be woke, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but here's Sudan Archives. She fits perfectly in between Big Thief and Beyonce. Yep. So I feel um, like it is kind of like the most politically smart choice to go with Sudan Archives. Who's going to argue with that? Yeah, no one. Yeah. Watch, we're going to be completely wrong and they're going to give it to Moto Mommy. And out came talk. Talk, talk. Welcome. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It's a special episode of your favorite podcast, Straight People Movies, the podcast where each week we two guys we explore movie made for straight people. And we ask why. Why? Why? What? We're both getting electroshock treatment right now yes. as we're saying why. We're both getting electroshock treat- treatment from um, the guy from Angels in America. Mm. Whenever I saw him, I was like, Lewis? Yeah, I know. It's him. <laughs> There's so many random people in this movie who, like, in my mind, are, like, important actors who have, like, five lines. It's insane. Like Dylan Baker when he shows up. Yes. I'm like, this is, like, post-happiness. What are you doing in this movie with, yeah, like, one line? <laughs> um, anyway, hi. I'm Kirk Van Sickle. And I'm Dylan Garcia. And first off, I'd like to say happy birthday to my co-host, Dylan. Thank you. I'm turning 21. Yes, he can drink. Mm-hmm. But he's already been doing lots of drugs, just like all the characters in this movie. I have. I'm missing my left arm. Mm. Mm. That's what happens, kids. Don't do heroin in an infected hole or else it'll get bigger. Yeah. <laughs> no one wants a big hole. Mm. Anywhere. Anywhere. But yeah, we, we uh, in case you haven't guessed it, we did uh, every straight person's favorite fucked up movie. We did Requiem for a Dream this week, everyone. We're doing it, baby. We Finally. Said, what better way to spend this holiday season than watching <laughs> my favorite winter movie, Requiem for a Dream? Yeah, it's, you know, it's chilly. It's a chilly movie. It's a chilly movie. I mean, well, in the first half, it's, like it's nice Island. and sunny, and yeah. everything's going great. And then the second half, it gets cold, and everything starts going not so great. Yeah, it's, once it gets to fall, it's bad. It gets really bad. It gets real bad. It gets, like, really bad. no joke. Yeah. It's bad, dog. Guys, in case you didn't know, drug addiction's <laughs> bad. It's No matter what kind of drugs you're doing, it's bad. You know what's really sad? I feel like... I was watching this interview with Ellen Burstyn earlier because I like bought the movie on iTunes and it came with extras. Um, And it was a cool like retrospective interview. It's actually the performance she's most proud of in her entire career. Oh, hell yeah. Isn't that cool? Um, But anyway, she was talking about how she's like, you know, the movie did like not so well when it first came out. Like, yeah, I was like nominated, but like people didn't get like see it really. And it's gotten more big over the years. And she's like, I know parents like show their kids Requiem for a Dream because they're trying to like get them not to do drugs. And I was like, Wow. I did not have that reaction to this movie when I no. saw it when I was a teenager at all. I literally was like, that looks so bad. I'm going to do that. <laughs> were You were also a Requiem for a Dream Obsessed uh, middle to high schooler like I was. Yes, I do feel like um, there's a couple of different trifectas that like a little bu- budding movie lover is going to have. And I do think that like my Donnie Darko 
Requiem for a Dream. And I guess I would like finish it out with maybe like Magnolia or like mm. American Beauty. Like for me, it's like that's where I, I fell. I fell into that camp. Hell yeah. Of just like, these movies are kind of weird. Yeah, but they get like other, but they get like nominated for Oscars, so they're like still accessible. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I was a huge Requiem for Dream fan. I had a poster in college. Yes, in my room. I love this movie um so much. So that's why we're here to talk about it. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. It's uh, it's always really fun to revisit it. It changes a lot as you get older, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. (laughs) (laughs) And as time passes, because uh, this is such an early 2000s movie. It's maybe the most early 2000s movie. I'm kind of mad that I didn't choose it for because like I'm going next in our movie club, and my theme is I have to bring something that represents the 2000s. This would be a great choice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for that. Um, yeah. But it's kind of that like late 90s, early 2000s, like Kate Moss, like black eye shadow moment. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's a little like pre-MySpace, so maybe I can find something a little better. It's a little Matthew Libatique is doing some camera some Matthew tricks, Libatique. isn't she? Oh, girl, she's doing some camera tricks. Oh, girl, oh, girl, she, she mounted that. Oh, she mounted that camera on Miss Ellen Burstyn. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> poor Miss Ellen. Um, no. Well, before we jump into chatting about Requiem for a Dream, why don't you give uh, the people a little background, Dylan? Of course. So, in honor of the new film by Darren Aronofsky, The Whale, which. I'm excited about even though I hear n- nothing but terrible things about it. I'm really curious because I feel like a lot of the people that say they don't like it, there's a lot of virtue signaling going on with why yeah. they don't like it. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go in as blank as I possibly can. I'm going to make it a bit and love it. Because <laughs> I'm just like, I feel like everyone's just like, wow, this movie is like really offensive to like obese people. And I'm like, okay, like, but is the movie good? Like, I just like, like, That's, you know, like, yeah. okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, no one... <laughs> No one answers the central question. I just want to know if it's good or not. Like, I don't, like, it's okay. Oh, Sadie's homophobic. Okay, whatever. I don't care. Like, I just want to know if it's good or not. Like, will it make me cry? Does Hong Chow serve in the movie? I mean, there's one shot of Hong Chow's face in the trailer, and bitch. (laughs) Woo! I'm very excited to see your performance in it. I'll be seeing it. I can't wait. I'll be seeing it. Miss Chow, she she always gives so much. She gives way too much. She gives way too much when she doesn't need to. No, she doesn't need to. Yeah. No one's giving it back to her in return. It's just unfair to Hong. Um, but in honor of the whale, we watched Requiem for a Dream, the 2000 film starring Ellen Burstyn, Jared Leto, Marlon Wayans, and Jennifer Connelly. And if you don't know the plot of the movie, it's really easy. It's a portrait of addiction, and the film follows four people as they struggle to control their demons. And Jennifer Connelly definitely comes out of everything the best. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, though, because I feel like when I was a kid, I was most fucked by her really? sequence though like that one freaked me out the most um oh, yeah hers is, i was gonna say hers and ellen are like the most like dramatic well no dramatic. i mean jared gets I his arm cut off <laughs> girl <laughs> his, arm, his arm almost falls off and then gets cut off yeah yeah it's they're all pretty i would say that out of the four marlin's seems the less intense visually but the context of like he's like in a really racist prison in the middle of the South, he's going through heroin withdrawals. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that it's pretty bad, too. Um, yeah. It's just hard when it's up against, like, ass-to-ass, arm-being-cut-off, ECT. You know? It's just yeah. like, he's just, like, mashing potatoes and sweating, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he mashes them so hard he throws up. Uh, and you can either buy this movie 
uh, or you can stream it on Tubi, which I can't imagine is maybe with commercial interruptions. I will say that I texted this to Dylan earlier, but I will say that just to protect my own sanity on this Lord's Monday, um, I definitely paused a lot during this movie oh, yeah. just because I was like, I feel like when you watch it in all one big chunk, it gets me every time. It's like impossible mm-hmm. not to get you. But I feel like because I paused a lot, I was able to like <laughs> take it in and be like, whoo, okay, let me go do some dishes uh, before I get to feed me Sarah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Wrecking for a Dream. I mean, this movie's sick. This movie's yeah. So good. It's so fun. Like, <laughs> I so know that's a fun. weird adjective to use, but it's fun to watch. Whenever I put it on, I was like, oh, it's 100 minutes. I was like, I, for some reason, imagine remember this movie being so much longer than it actually mm-hmm. is. It's real streamlined. It's real. It goes. It's quick. It's a quick movie. Um, I. What's cool about Working for a Dream is, like, it's so funny that it's such a popular movie amongst, like, beginning film bros. Because I don't really feel like a lot of movies, like, followed suit after this one. It no. really is its like own beast, and it's like editing, it's cinematography, the whole like language of the movie is so unique. And I mean, honestly, probably the only thing that's borrowed anything from this movie is music videos. I don't really feel like actual mm-hmm. film like followed suit, and I think that's what makes the movie even more special as time has gone on. What this movie has influenced is not the movie, but it's. I mean, we'll get to it later, but like, I'd say its biggest influence is the score. Yes, I think Clint Manziel's score for this is probably, like, I feel like this was the most influential score at the beginning of the decade for the rest of the decade, and then the next big score that influenced the rest of the decade was Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score for The Social Network. Mm-hmm. Like, I would say that, like, The Social Network score and The Requiem for a Dream score are the two most important scores of the last 20 years. With Mika yeah. Levy's Under the Skin score and being Inception. the best score, but maybe not the most influential, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh yeah, I would I would throw Inception in there, and uh, probably for like indie girlies or like more alt girlies, the uh, if Beale Street could talk score. Oh, it's so good! It's so good. Yeah, uh, but that's much lesser. That's like a, you know, it's actually a good score. I really like Alexandra Desplat's score for Fantastic Mr. Fox as well. Oh, so good. Yeah. It's so good. Desplat so good. rules. Yeah, Desplat's great. You it know who really... Oscar, right? I was thinking about this the other day because one of my favorite scores that no one ever talks about is I think that Thomas Newman score for In the Bedroom is, like, so amazing. Um, Dude, I haven't gotten back to listen to that. But it's funny because I feel like he had such a chokehold in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, like, mm-hmm. what is he... Does he do anything anymore? Yeah, what is... I that? love his scores. I think he writes really cool scores for movies. Oh, he did 1917. Very cool. He did, yeah, I think he just works with Mindy's now. And that's um, it. Oh, so he did... Oh, he did Dog. That's upsetting. Um, he did The Little Things, also upsetting. Yeah. Let Them I All think... Talk, which is cool. But yeah, he does just, like, Passengers, Finding Dory. Yeah, it's really Ooh. weird. Oh, he did do the original Finding Nemo score, which is also really good as well. There you go. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. His like little like xylophone moment, like really went out of style, huh? Mm-hmm. Or whatever yeah. the fuck that is that he's playing all the time. Vibraphone. Yeah. Something like that. Vibraphone. Yeah. But, anyway, <laughs> but yeah, Clint I get Man- a lot of, uh, like marimba TikTok for some reason. I don't know why the algorithm thinks I'm so interested in marimbas, but I get a lot of marimbas. That's cute. It's cute. I love it. But anyway, Clint Manziel, this is the second Should movie I- score ever, girl. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, he did pie, and he did, then he did this. 
Fuck, Pi is so fucking good. Let's just talk about Aronofsky. Pi is so good. I haven't seen Pi since I was in high school because I bought... So I probably bought like five iterations of Requiem for a Dream over the years. I just bought a 4K director's cut of it on iTunes, but... I had I once upon a time had a DVD two disc collection of Pi and Requiem for a Dream. Nice. Um, so I've only seen it the one time. I remember I really liked it. It's definitely mm. one of those like it reads like a low budget student film, but it's like actually good. It's it's very good. Yeah. It's also Lewis from Angels in America is in that too. Um, but yeah, how do you feel about Aronofsky? I think that Aronofsky is one of the coolest directors of his generation. He rules. Um, cause even when he's not good, it's still interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's the classic adage about him where it's like, everyone says Darren Aronofsky, Darren Aronofsky has two good movies, but you can never say which two they are. Yeah, it's true. Cause I feel like even the ones that people don't like, like, like for example, I brought the fountain to my movie club. No one liked it. Um, <laughs> yeah, but even though I could recognize the faults in it, it just like, it got to me when I was like a teenager and I like still love it. Like there's awesome just something Aronofsky is definitely one of those. Like you've got to watch that shit when you're young. I think mm-hmm. he reminds me of, well, I think because the reason he reminds me because I got into him at the same time, but of uh, Palinuk. Mm. Of, mm-hmm. like, you can't start reading a Chuck Palinuk book in your twenties. Or else you're yeah. a fucking nerd. You had to read that when you're 15. Yeah, I agree. There is something a little like immature about Aronofsky's mm-hmm. work, but I like that about him. Yeah. And even whenever he does try to be a, I'd say like the wrestler might be his most like. I make him a movie. I made a real movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's like, yeah, he's like, I make a movie about like a real uh, troubled man. Uh, even the wrestler rips. The wrestler. I love the wrestler. I think so that good. that is probably one of the most underrated movies of the last twenty years. Mm-hmm. I think it hits just as hard as Black Swan. I know it's yeah. not as like fun to watch. It's not as like stylish, but like they're sister movies to me. They're same, like I the agree. male and female. They're like very gendered, but it's like the same concept about chasing perfection. Yeah. Um, and I love it. I love the wrestler. Um, and even like Noah, like is such a confused movie, but it's like. So cool that it exists. It's like yeah. this like weird like pagan version of like Noah's Ark. Like that's the one I haven't seen of his. It's wild. And it's like Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connelly and their children are Logan Lerman and Emma Watson. It's like hell yeah. Bizarre. Um <laughs> super fun to watch. Definitely probably his worst film, but like again, like his worst film is a fucking Noah's Ark epic. Like yeah, I don't feel like other directors can like like I would much rather rewatch Noah than rewatch like Licorice Pizza. Yeah, it's like for me, Licorice Pizza is by far PTA's worst movie, and it's like, but it's like boring. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. At least Noah is like dumb and fun. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And then we get to Mother, which oh. we talked a bunch, a bunch, a bunch on this podcast. But like, fuck, it's so good. It's such a crazy. It's so crazy the like turnaround that movie has had because I feel like now, the world is like Mother's good. Yeah, we've. I mean, I was banging the drum for Mother. The I think I saw it the Saturday it came out. I think what's film. interesting about Mother more than any other movie I've ever seen is it was a kind of the press cycle is what ruined the movie. I think when it came Mm -hmm. out, because you get the whole thing about like J law and him dating. And then you get the whole thing about like J law and him feel like they need to explain the movie to everybody. Um, Cause when I saw it, I thought my reading of the movie was better than Aronofsky's explanation. Like Mm -hmm. I caught the biblical references, but I was also like, 
I don't know. Like, I, I kind of got, like, a Phantom Thread vibe from the movie where it's like, oh, it's about, like, an artist and his muse. Like, it's about an artist yeah. abusing his muse. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought that that was cooler and more fun. And then instead it's like, no, she's Mother Earth and he's God. I'm like, okay, girl, <laughs> like, shut the fuck up. Like, I can't. I'm sorry. Uh, but I didn't Parker. read the Bible, so I didn't I didn't catch a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, you never seen the original. I've never you seen the original Bible, the so I, I didn't really get the remake. Um, but I thought it was a cool <laughs> movie. And I think it's Jennifer Lawrence's best performance, like, by far. Um, Easily. And it's a cool movie. And yeah. I think that, like, we're getting back into, like, wrestler territory with the whale, it looks like. I will say when I watched the trailer, I thought that, like, the cinematography was, like, real ugly. Yeah, why does the whale look like like a video game interstitial? Like, it, it looks weird. weird. It's, like, so grainy. Like, I'm like, okay, we get it. You shoot on film still, you know? Yeah. But it, like, well, the thing of like Wrecking for a Dream is also like incredibly grainy. Like mm. I was watching it, I was like, I had that, I downloaded the, like an illegal version of it, but it was like a Blu-ray rip, and I was like, damn, this even this is like still like, I don't know how they could like upscale this anymore. Oh yeah, like I watched a 4K Dolby like version of the movie, yeah. and it still like is grainy. I think that's just the way it looks, but it it fits the vibe. I mean, maybe it'll fit the vibe of the whale. I'll just say that the mm. trailer, I don't think they know how to advertise this movie um, no. at all. And I will say that I tend to have issues with, I love, so, you know, I think we've talked about this. I love a movie set in like one day. Mm -hmm. Mama, I love a movie set in one day. I love a movie set in one week. Mm -hmm. Give me a couple days. I love movies that don't take place over a large period of time. The Whale is a play. Yeah. So I already know it's all set in one location. I am not a huge fan of movies that are set in one location. Okay. I like to be able to go out. Girl, I need to see the world. I mean, that's the magic of cinema, baby. You yes, can do whatever you want. You can take me yes. anywhere, bitch. Yes. And you're going to take me into this, like, drab-ass house? <laughs> and that's all? Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, I just don't... I don't want to say that they shouldn't have made it for, like, moral reasons, because you can make whatever the fuck you want. But it's one of those things where it's like, adapting a play is so hard to do. Yeah. Because, like, they're such different mediums. Like, when I, I'm thinking the nearest comparison I can think of is The Humans. And yeah, like, that movie's so lucky that it came out during the pandemic on Showtime, because like if you try to market that movie to like a wider audience, you're gonna fail. Because like it just seems like, like why would you waste your time watching such a small thing? Yeah, I think for me it's the mix of the one location part and also that actors in play adaptations tend to like really chew it up too much mm-hmm. for me. Like a movie that people seem to really like when it came out that I can't stand is Doubt. Um, okay. I, I thought that the Doubt movie, the Doubt movie was just so the sweeping like mm-hmm. brushstrokes of that movie were like too much for me. I was like, girl, like every scene in this is just like, just the the stakes are so high, and I bet is this would that- rip on stage. This would rip on stage, but in a movie, it just felt too much. Um, I for some reason thought Doubt was a was a Nichols joint. It is not. It's a John Patrick Shanley. Yeah, he's also but- the playwright. But Mike Nichols, he can turn shit. He can, he can. So Mike Nichols, yes, Mike Nichols' mama knows. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is probably Mm -hmm. the best play adaptation I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Um, I also do like, he didn't direct this, but I also like A Streetcar Named Desire too. But it's like easier with old things because they're already so stagey. Like you already know it's going to be stagey. So like I can like ease into it a little better with an older movie. But Mm -hmm. I like Closer too, which he also directed. Um, But... And Angels in America, obviously, girl. Of course. Girl. But that's girl. what's cool about Angels in America is I feel like they added extra scenes from what I understand of when I read the play a million years ago. And they, they took a lot of scenes and put them elsewhere for the, yeah, for the so movie. Yeah, so 
there i think there's like and because i saw the play relatively recently and like the play i think has like two extra scenes but the second half is more different than the second half of like the perestroika part of it is more different on stage than it is in the screen but it's because it's more of a vibe and weirder Mm -hmm. uh in the play text um but yeah angels in america if you haven't watched it we recommend it all the time but it's fucking incredible go watch it but it is a little interesting that darren's doing a play because i feel like when you look at requiem for a dream when you look at all of his other work it's like there's just something so fantastical about the things Mm -hmm. he does um even like the wrestler is like it's steeped in a sort of vibe like there's a tone to the wrestler that's like it just looks decrepit and Mm -hmm. sad and abandoned and i'm just curious to see how darren does with like limited space and like four characters you know like i'm really yeah. curious um well the thing with like it, that wrecking for a dream does so well because like it, it really does there are maybe five locations in wrecking for a dream that's true and but there's so much like visual flair like so much of the like psychedelic music video drugs taking scenes Love and it. whenever ellen is hallucinating while the refrigerator stuff and having these sort of double takes and split screens and there's a lot of visual stuff. I don't know if there's going to be that much like visual language in the whale. Yeah. Well, he's also like calmed down with a lot of that stuff. I mean, mother yeah. was like kind of like his kind of return to like the Blood work for dream vibe. But yeah. yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be like a mature work, um, yeah, no, which is fine. I but like I feel that. like he just does crazy well. I mean, Requiem for a dream What's cool about this movie is, like, when you watch it when you're a teenager, you're just so caught up in the tone and the vibe that, like, honestly, Mm. I don't think I really understood the plot of this movie until this (laughs) viewing. I've seen the movie probably, like, ten times. Um, Like, I don't feel like I'd ever watched it with subtitles, ever. And I was, like, and I've listened to enough rap music in my life that now I know what a lot of the the terms they're using are. (laughs) Like, copying this, schlepping that. And I'm, like, oh, oh, they're, like. Drug dealers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I literally, it like just never, like I didn't get it. Like when I was a teenager, well, I was like, like, oh, they're drug addicts. Like I got yeah. that part, but I didn't get that they were also selling drugs and they were lying about doing them too. Like we, we always say on this podcast, we don't understand um, crime or money mm-hmm. and selling drugs is both. Yeah. So, so I feel, but also it. the movie does kind of skip over details. Like the movie's not, is not that concerned about the plot, it seems like. Because no. it really just kind of flies you through it. It's like Marion mentions at the beginning of the film that she wants to, like, open a store because she designs clothes. And there's, like, one sequence where she's, like, sewing while high or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then that's really it. Like, you know, they don't really, like, you know, like, even her relationship with her therapist is confusing to me. Like, I don't mm-hmm. feel like they really, like, they on purposely don't really give us a lot of details. They kind of just, it's, like, so broad. It's, like, yeah. she's having sex for money. Like, that's the takeaway, you know, yeah. or having sex for drugs. Um, That's what you're supposed to get out of this. Not, like, oh, what's the background of her and her therapist, you know? <laughs> like, he's an evil scumbag. That's it, mm-hmm. you know? So it's almost like a fairy tale, burst. sort of. It's like a fairy yeah. tale nightmare, it feels like, as I've gotten older. Yeah, and, like, Ellen Burstyn, her whole thing still does feel like hers is the most surreal of Mm -hmm. it. Because it's like, okay, so she's going to be on TV doing what? A contestant on a game show? But, like, her favorite program isn't a game show. It's, like, an infomercial. Yeah, it it is. It's so fantastical. It's so surreal because it's, like, there's no way, like, in the reality, like, in 
a reality where a Sarah Goldfarb exists that what she does all day is just watch this like infomercial on loop. For real. Yeah, like what channel is even playing this? Yeah, so I think that, but the movie starts with the infomercial, right? So I feel like Mm -hmm. Darren kind of already establishes so quickly that this, there is a level of fantastic to Mm -hmm. this. And like nothing you're seeing is like real, it's all about the feeling. And I think that's what's so cool about him as a director is like forget logic, forget like character motivation, like in the sense of like a cause and effect getting to X, Y, and Z. It's like, it's all about the vibe, it's all about the tone, it's all about the emotion. Of yeah. what the the material, so I think that's cool. He does paint and like he does paint his characters in his movies with like broad strokes, like the fountain. Like yeah, the you could say it's convoluted, but at the end of the day, it's about a man who really loves this woman. Yeah, and and it's Rashmon trying to express just, like what it's like to yeah. be so in love and so and grieving so hard. Like that's what the movie is. It's literally just like I want to like it's like the sublime. Like I think that he's always trying to take you to some form of the sublime, even if it's like mm-hmm. evil. The evil kind. <laughs> and you usually get it in his movies. Like, his movies do end in this sort of, like, in a catharsis, in a sort of, like, I don't even want it, like, like almost like ejaculatory. Like, no, I agree. All way. of his movies are, they, they do such a good job of building the tension. And there, it gets to a point in all of his films, Black Swan, Mother, this one especially, where you're like, where can we even go from here? It's gotten mm-hmm. so intense, so emotional, and then every time he nails it. Yeah. He, he nails does. it. Because even with the fountain, you can't argue that that, like, final act isn't, like, the most, like, insanely beautiful and, like, crazily, like, surreal. Like, it's just visually stunning. You're mm-hmm. like, holy shit. <laughs> like, he's and- turning into stardust, mama. Like, yeah. And, like, Black Swan, it's like, yeah, she won the Oscar for the movie, but she won the Oscar for that last 20 minutes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I honestly, like, let me get, like, a little frank. Um, Natalie Portman is one of those actors where I think she's actually kind of bad. um, (laughs) Unless she's given the right material. Mm -hmm. Um, Black Swan is, like, written for her. Like, it's, like, the perfect movie for her because she's just so, like, wooden and poised, I feel like. As a human being. And I feel like she's actively, like, weirdly bad in Black Swan. And then there's a point in the movie where it, like, clicks. Like, the performance mm-hmm. starts clicking. And you're like, oh. Like, the reason why everything she does comes across in such a way is because she's literally stunted emotionally as a human being. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, she's, I mean, she's like, she's a, a little girl there. inside. Like, yeah. you know? And it's a, it's that scene where, like, she's masturbating and her mom's watching her. I think that was what unlocked the movie. Um, what a fucking sick movie it's so good it's so insane did you suck his cock (laughs) um so good um but yeah speaking of acting um Mm -hmm. holy fucking shit is everyone like pretty much excellent in this but no one can touch miss ellen fucking burston in this movie girl Girl. what a cool performance from an older actress like yeah so cool like, this is such a, like, this feels almost, like, this feels like his Magnolia in Definitely. the sense of, like, he did this original, I guess he had this, I guess more like his Boogie Nights. I'm I'm going to ignore Boogie Nights for a minute, but, like, it feels like here's a movie, this, like, grand sweeping movie starring cool older actors giving like their best performances. Yeah. Like Darren Aronofsky was like young as fuck when he did this. Like he was in his twenties and 
I think it's like really, I, again, I just watched this interview with Ellen Burstyn. It was really cool because, you know, she got the script. She was like, I don't want to do this. This is like really dark, you know? And then mm. she watched Pie. And that's so what made cool. her want to do it. She went, this is what, quote, she went, oh, he's an artist. Okay, I'll do it. And it's like that's so cool that like so a woman cool. that would like is already like past the prime of her career has already won. An, she's already won an Oscar, right? Or maybe she hasn't. Yeah, she won in like the 70s. She won yeah. for Alice Doesn't Live Here That's anymore. what it is. So she's already an Academy Award winner. She's like an established actor. She's been in like classic movies like The Exorcist. And here she is like taking a chance on being in like a basically new director's like first like bigger budget film. Like that is so yeah. cool. And it is one of the coolest performances uh, I think I've ever seen. Like I think she puts her whole fucking pussy into it. Oh, um, she 100% does. It's so good. And like the scene where she says it's a reason to get up in the morning. It's a reason to put on Ugh. the red dress. It is like one of the most like heartbreaking acting scenes ever. Like Jared like doesn't know what to do in that scene. Cause Ellen is just like eating him up. <laughs> it's so funny watching Jared in that scene. Cause he is just like, he's not acting anymore. He's just on set with this woman. Who's just destroying him. Just acting yeah. circles around it's him. It's so good. And when she says, I'm old. And whenever he goes, oh, you have friends. She goes, oh, but it's not the same. Like she like breaks out of it for a second. Yeah, the the performance is so cool because as someone that's like, you know, done a thing or two in his life, I will (laughs) say that like one of the things I really appreciate about her performance this time around is how accurate of a performance of someone that's on drugs it is. Mm -hmm. It's not just about like the emotional content of what Ellen's doing, but it's also like the way she's delivering the lines feels like someone like coked out. Yeah. Like someone getting really emotional while being on like a lot of drugs. Mm-hmm. So it's even more like disturbing to watch. It's so sad. She's, yeah, she's a genius. I mean, we have talked about this year. I mean, it's it's the greatest best actress lineup of all time. It really is. And and that's, and it's missing a couple of people. For real. You could take out, I would say, Joan Allen for the contender. Yeah. And Juliet Binoche for chocolate, even though no, I love Juliet. No, no. <laughs> all I need is Bjork needs to be put back. Like Bjork. Yeah. Just somewhere in there, just throw Bjork in, and then we've got such an amazing lineup. Just make it six. Who cares? Make it yeah, six. Yeah, just make it six. Put Bjork in there. Because here's the thing. I Bjork and Ellen Burstyn, if I made a list, they would both be in my top ten favorite performances of all time, I think. Yeah. And it's crazy because I really don't. Like, I would probably give it to Bjork just because I think it's one of the most, like, interesting acting performances probably ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ellen is just so good in Mark She's so good. I was thinking before we started, I was, like, I was looking at the uh, this year's Oscars. I don't think we talked about how good of an Oscars year this is. But, like, I was thinking, like, okay, because Reckon for a Dream only got one nomination in Ellen. Where else could we put people? But I don't think we could put anyone else in this movie so it's tough because so I thin. love Jennifer in this. Yeah, she's so, it's crazy. Also, three of the four main people have Oscars. Like, yeah, the only heard that no, it's Oscar. funny because Jennifer won the next year for Beautiful Mind, right? Uh huh. Yeah, and so for if we were to put Jennifer in, we would have to kick out either Marsh Gay Harden, Judy Dench, Kate Hudson, Frances McDormand, or Julie Walters, and it's like, yeah, maybe I, kick out Judy. I guess, you know, Kate Hudson in Almost Famous is another one of my favorite yeah. performances. Um, as someone that's just, like, a little bit more on the, like, I like a fucked up movie. Um, I would, like, probably give it to Jennifer this year, like, just in general. Like, my favorite mm-hmm. supporting actress performance. But Kate Hudson in Almost Famous is, like, probably one of my more f- 
fun, like my one of my favorite like fun performances. Um, and I'm so excited to see her in Glass Onion. I know. I, I heard she's, she's really good in part. it. I heard she's really good in it. But yeah, Jennifer's so good in this. For me, I get shivers every time she like stabs the um, therapist with the fork in her yes. head, and she goes, "You smug fuck." So yes. good. And when she calls, when she calls Jared Leto a fucking loser, I don't think anyone's delivered a line like that with more vitriol. And <laughs> I've never heard someone say it was such like just a venom. It is like the yeah, meanest. Like that scene, she's so mean to him. It is like insane. Like Jared doesn't even know what to do in this movie. I'm sorry, can I just say that? Like he's mm-hmm. good in it, but like he's getting eaten up by everybody else, I think. He's getting eaten up by Marlon. And Marlon's so good in this. So good in I it. like I heard that a lot of his like storyline was cut out of the movie. Um oh, and it's kind of a shame because I think that what is there is like so good. Mm-hmm. Um he's really good in this. Um and I'm surprised it didn't like I don't know, like jumpstart like a dramatic career for him. Um, That's weird. Kind of a shame. Yeah. All right. Why do straight people like this movie? And it's because, number one, this movie is fucked up. They love fucked up movies, but also I love fucked up movies. I don't know if that's like, (laughs) I don't know if it's like a gay straight alliance thing or if it's like, that's like the straight part of ourselves that likes a fucked up movie. I think our like, idea like gay people idea fucked up versus like a straight people idea fucked up is like <laughs> we do it campily <laughs> May- like... maybe though because but the thing is it's like i know so many gay people that love lars von trier who's like mm-hmm. probably the king of like fucked up movies yeah we love well i don't know about record Dream, but we love black swan yeah but like even but like that shit is like campy to me. Yeah, Black Swan like, is Lars campy and like artsy and like like Lars von Trier. Like like maybe the only sort of one that would cross over to the gay continuum or the straight continuum would be like Antichrist. Yeah, I don't know a lot of gays that like Antichrist, but we sure love Breaking the Waves and Dancer with the Dark. That's exactly, that's the thing where it's like yeah, I, we we have similar the the goals. We want to achieve are the same, but the way we get there is different. Maybe, but it's also interesting, too, because I feel like when I've watched... So I've seen Requiem for a Dream quite a few times. That's probably why I'm deranged. Um, most people are like, this is a, like a one-and-done type movie. No, yeah. I've seen it so many times. I love this movie. Um, I love the way it makes me feel. It's like yeah. it's like a horror movie. Like I truly think Requiem for a Dream should be considered like a non-horror horror film. Um, well, and whenever you watch it, like, are you going in because you want to feel bad or are you like kind of relishing in the like so there you go i think it's a little bit of both um i do think that like this movie you could argue is campy um mainly because i think the most harrowing part of the movie is also the funniest part of the movie which is when the people come out of sarah's tv and they say feed me sarah I literally like cry during that scene every time. Cause I just think it's so cruel and mean, but it's also super funny and wild. Um, mm-hmm. And I love it. And I, yeah, I, I do say that by, yeah, I don't know. I don't I just like, like letting the movie like take a hold of me. It's like a loss of control thing. It's almost like being on drugs sort of. Yeah. And that's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm saying. It's like, okay, straight people, like I'm trying to think of like a fucked up movie. Like one that I've always wanted to do that will probably be the last episode of the show if we ever if we ever do it is Dear Zachary a letter from his father to his son never seen that but it's a documentary but it's like it's it's this movie that's like it's the most straight people movies it's like the most extreme version of straight people movies that I can think of but it's one of those movies that whenever you like like you would you ever look up on Google most fucked up movies to yes. watch yes you would okay yes because I have 
Gotcha. And then I'm like, and then I'm like, I've seen all of these. Yeah, because that's kind of my like. I get, okay, that kind of puts a hole in my theory because my theory behind it was that like straight people just like love going on Reddit and being like, what's the most fucked up movie that has the craziest fucking ending, and then just watching that. I think that I do think that it's a straight remnant of myself. I think that, but I think that that also comes from a bigger picture. And we're getting like this is getting deep, but like, yeah, I think that privileged white men like to watch fucked up movies because okay. I think it's kind of like exploitative. Um, I think that there's like a distance when I watch something like Requiem for a Dream, or when a lot of people watch something like Requiem for a Dream, because it's like that would never be my life. Mm-hmm. Like I would never be in a situation like Harry's probably. Um, no. I think that's why Ellen Burson's um, character hits the most because I feel like we all could see ourselves becoming that. And we also all know older people in our lives where you're like, Oh my God, I can like see that happening. One well, is also because it's like every, every other person you see in the movie is like mid addiction. And she's the only one that you see like start it. Yeah. Like start an addiction. Like there have it's already smart. been like issues there in the, like rooted in there. Like she already had rooted body issues, whatever. But like hers is the only addiction that you see go from beginning to end. Right. And I think that there's just something kind of like cathartic for me personally. I can't speak for anyone else, but I think there's something cathartic about watching a fucked up movie. Um, I don't think it's as simple or as like exploitative as like, oh, wow, that made me feel better because I know my life will never be as bad as that. I think it's because we all have it in us to have lives as bad as that. And Mm -hmm. it's almost like like watching a horror movie where like you watch it because you need to get this like out of your system or something. It's like a death drive or something. You're like. You're like, I could be the characters from Mercury Dream, or I could, like, uh, be, like, the characters and kids, but, like, I'm not going to do that. So I get to, like, live yeah. in their world for, like, two hours, and then I get to, like, leave that world, you know? Yeah, then, like, but the thing I, I kind of, I wonder if, like, the straight people doing fucked up shit, or, like, watching fucked up shit, does that mentality continue on to more extreme things. Like, would you say that you're what I'm, what I'm trying to get. No, no, just get, get to it. It's okay. I won't be offended. Like the only people that I know that actually watch like, like live leak shit and like actual, like, like security camp footage of like violent crimes are Mm. straight people. And so I think there is this sort of like where gay people watching fucked up shit kind of ends that film. Mm. And straight people like kind of keep it going into like real life i would agree with you you know i just watched this movie that i didn't think was very good but it had an interesting concept it was called thesis and it's by the director of the others it's his first film it's in spanish in spain and it's a movie about a girl in college who's writing like a dissertation on violence and she ends up like finding a snuff film and then like crazy things happen because of that Mm -hmm. i don't think that realistic violence is something that i've ever sought out or like like for me like seeing real life violence like makes me sick like i don't like watch the videos of like people being killed by the cops like i've never seen one like Mm -hmm. i don't need i don't want to watch it like i don't think i need that to make me feel like uh, upset about what's going on like i don't think i need to see the real violence to be like wow the world's fucked up like i know it's fucked up you know (laughs) so i do agree that i need it to be artistic um Mm -hmm. i do think that there's something kind of like tragic or like operatic maybe is the right word he's about like requiem for a dream and like other or even like breaking the waves is like operatic to me um Mm -hmm. it's like it's like in the new episode the white lotus uh, or one of the new ones where jennifer coolidge goes and sees madam butterfly i feel like 
that's the gay part of seeing something like this. It's like, I just want to yeah. watch like someone's life be horrible. And then what I'm doing as a gay person is I'm going, this could be me. Mm-hmm. I know what it feels like to be this emotionally like all over the place. I feel like when straight people watch Working for a Dream, they're like, oh, I feel sorry for them. Or like, that's really sad. But for me, or I'm they, like, oh, that could be me. Or they see Sarah maybe as like the comical one. Maybe. Like, she I don't is know. like hers is the funniest, not the funniest, like haha, but like she hers is the, it's the most, most lighthearted. I it's guess. the most it's also, insane yeah. one in the terms of like everything that happens in the movie makes sense, but like hers is the most surreal. I agree. It's like so she's been on pills for like what six months, like tops, yeah. and she first off she has like a bunch of best friends in her apartment building. None of them went and checked on her. Like mm-hmm. I just like don't believe that. Um, and I just feel like her descent into madness is like it is a little broad. Um, it only works because Ellen makes it work, but Jeez. it is a little crazy. And then she just like gets like put into a mental hospital, like, huh? Yeah. I don't know. It just doesn't feel. I also don't think that people would like. I don't think that you could put Jared Leto and Marlon Wayans in jail just because one of them has like an infected arm from a needle. Like if they don't. I mean, maybe they had drugs on them. I don't know, but they don't show that. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm like, oh, they just go to jail because they exist, like <laughs> in Florida or Georgia, where the fuck they are. Um, so I think that's a little ridiculous. The movie's kind of ridiculous when you actually yeah. like break it down. You're like, this is this is kind of like a drug PSA. Let's see. Yeah, like what kind of doctor? Like the things that isn't that the thing they always tell you is that like tell doctors what kind of meds and drugs you've taken because they're not they're not the police yeah they're gonna treat you first like that's that maybe, sucks and, that happens and, and, and maybe i'm being naive maybe i'm being naive and like in a small town in yeah. the south like they could get away with something like that because like it's the wild west out there but yeah um it just feels a little it felt a little crazy this viewing i was like wait what like yeah like they don't treat him at all they just like send him straight to jail like that's crazy they but again no i'm probably harm. just being naive i don't know yeah but, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I But I, I think this is an interesting conversation about, like, fucked up shit. Because I've thought about it a lot. I'm like, why do I like to watch fucked up movies? But I think it's because I insert myself into the character. I live in their world. I'm like, I could see myself spiraling like this under the right circumstances, but I'm not going to. While I feel like if I watched one of these movies with one of my straight guy friends, I feel like they'd be more like, wow, I really pity these characters. Mm-hmm. But I feel like for me, I empathize with them. Like, what do you get at when you watch, like, Come and See? Well, Come and See is weird because it's so fantastical to me. Like, I've never, like, I don't live in, like, a small village in the 1930s, like, Mm -hmm. being taken over by Nazis. It's, like, almost, like, so foreign to me that, like, I I think Come and See, oh, Come and See. We're, (laughs) we're like, talking about Come and See. Um, Come and See is cool because I feel like it's not, I feel like Come and See is cool because it, it it's not like Saving Private Ryan, right? Where, like, mm-hmm. it it tries to make you feel like it's realistic, but in actuality, it's just a schmaltzy, three-hour-long Hollywood blockbuster movie with, like, it's, like, it's got an act one, act two, and act three. You know, like, it's, yeah. it's your classic script. While Come and See mixes the fantastical and the surreal with the horror of war, and it becomes, mm-hmm. like, an actual nightmare. <laughs> like, yeah. like, Come and See is, like, actually a nightmare movie, and it feels so overbearing that I feel like the the director probably, at least from my emotional standpoint, probably captured war better than any other director ever has. Like, because I think war is surreal or that's what his kind of theme is. That yeah. war is surreal. Um, 
it's so fucked up that it's like you can't even fathom it. Yeah. Um, and he does that, and the movie is horrific. And I don't think I could ever watch it again. It's like too much. Yeah, I uh, I want to watch it because you know it's one of those things where I want to be in the conversation. Right, as much of a conversation there is about come and see, but I also don't want to. It'll ruin your day for sure. It's definitely like. It was definitely a lot more artsy than I thought it was going to be. I feel like the movie's sold as like, oh, it's the best war movie ever. And we have these preconceived notions, like I said, of what a war movie's like. Mm-hmm. But this is actually like, it's got like a Tarkovsky-esque, like dreamy quality to it okay, as well. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot. It's a lot. And I was actually really angry at the movie um, because it makes some choices that are bold, very bold. Um, I don't want to give it away, but it's just like, you just see such horrible violence in it and then there's a choice the main character makes that's kind of like uh, him showing mercy and it's like yeah it's a lot okay. it, 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 it is south korean revenge drama let me say <laughs> that's why i like south korean revenge dramas mama because i am an mm-hmm. eye for an eye kind of girl um oh yeah i'm an eye for a uh, girl i'm sorry I'm, I'm not a good christian i'm an eye for an eye and i love korean revenge dramas yes. because when somebody does some fucked up shit in one of those movies, they get what's coming to them. Mm-hmm. And I love it. Oh, torture them. They deserve it. Man, I was at Half Price Books a few months ago, and they had Pieta. Mm. And it was, I had this thing where it's like, if it's, if a, if there's an object that I deem to be just slightly too expensive for me, uh, I will leave it at the store. Mm. And if it's there when I come back, it was meant to be, and I'll buy it. I love that idea. And so I did that because I was like, I'm not spending $40 on a Blu-ray. But if it's here when I come back, I will because it was meant to be. Pieta's so good. And when I came back, it was gone. Somebody else in Austin saw the Blu-ray of Pieta and was like, this is mine. I love Pieta. Yeah, that's a good example. That director, Kim Ki-Duke, for me, uh, it does a really good job of like telling harrowing stories. Um, mm-hmm. But his are a little different. They're not like Requiem for a Dream. Requiem for a Dream is like I said, like I can insert myself into like Jennifer Connelly's character or like Jared Leto's character. Mm-hmm. But with like Pieta, it's like, talk about operatic, you know, it's called mm-hmm. fucking Pieta for God's sake. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> it is a lot. Um, Pun intended. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I don't know. I, but I do think that, I do think that there's like a little bit of like a voyeurism to when straight people watch fucked up movies. I do have to agree with that. Yeah. I would hope, I mean, it's kind of a hard to avoid it completely. Like, of course we're all voyeurs at the end of the day, but mm-hmm. um, I don't think I like watch fucked up things because I'm like, I want to watch people suffer. Yeah. Um, I think, it's I think be- we all have our own version of fucked up shit that we are attracted to. Like my favorite genre of movie is bitches fighting. Mm-hmm. And like, I have definitely gotten in fights with people about like, ooh, that's like kind of like problematic. Like the way I describe it is problematic. I understand, uh, but like, like, that is problematic. The material of like f- pitting two women against each other, and that's like a whole genre, subgenre unto itself. But it's like, I just love watching it. Yeah, because there's fight. a part of yourself that like you just kind of like, you're like you almost kind of wish you were like that. Like you're like yes. I wish I was just so fucking like ballsy and crazy that I just like popped off on a bitch because I got mad, you know? I want to be Beyonce or Allie Larder and obsessed. Mm-hmm. I want to be either one of them. And that's that camp thing you're talking about, which mm-hmm. I agree is part of the allure of things like that. It just gets tough when you get into like, like when someone wants to watch Come and See is a good example. When people want to watch mm. Come and See just because they heard it's fucked up. Like that's yeah. the main 
drop. Yes, I think that's I think that's the main difference. It's like whenever you want to watch a fucked up movie, are you watching the movie or are you watching the fucked up part of it? Yeah. Yeah, because there's that thing that happens where, like, then movies get sold as, like, fucked up movies. And then they, like, will be like, that wasn't that fucked up. Yeah, and it's like, okay, what is the fucking... It's like they want, like, a Serbian film, you know, or whatever. That's the ultimate... A Serbian film is so stupid. I've never seen it. I have no desire to watch that movie. We'll never do it for the pod. Watch it yourself. But it sucks. It's dumb. But, yeah, that's, like, the ultimate example of, like... This movie's so fucking fucked up. You can't last through it, you little bitch. Yeah, like, I think Salo has that sort of reputation, mm-hmm. right? Like, I feel like Salo's the number one movie that film lovers have heard about, but a lot of them haven't seen it because it's, like, mm-hmm. kind of been... It's kind of considered the most fucked up movie of all time, but it's, like, I've seen it, and it's, like, really artsy. It's, like, very mm-hmm. European, um, and it is really fucked up. Some of those images I will never forget for the rest of my life. But it's also so clear when you're watching the movie that there's like a point to it. Like you're like, yeah. this was not made by like someone that's like, <laughs> like I want to show <laughs> yeah. kids be tortured. It's like, no, like this is like about like fascism, you know, like, this is yeah. like about like the evils of fascism. Um, yeah. And I feel like it's very clear when you're watching the movie, but obviously if you're going into it, like I just want to see kids get tortured, then like, well, there you go. Okay. That's in there you too. So it. you got what you wanted. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, we had talked about it earlier, but like just to reiterate the score to this movie the number of like anime compilations on YouTube <laughs> that are set to the score millions. It's iconic. You know, it's really funny when I was in high school, I put on a play, like I like wrote a play and like, oh, hell yeah. for class and like had like kids in my class, like do the play. And I use Lux at Turna as yes. like, is this the most like high school thing you've ever heard in your life? Of I was like, course. my play is really sad. I'm going to use the score from Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, um, it's like one of those things whenever I like discovered the Pixies in high school and I was talking to a friend, I was like, I just discovered this really cool band. Have you ever heard of them? They're called the Pixies. Oh, <laughs> like Dylan Fight Club. And I, I was, was like, so like that. No, it's that. Yeah, I was so like that. I was very like that girl that was like, have y'all heard of Donnie Dargo? Have y'all like listened to <laughs> Supion Stevens? He's like really underground. Mm-hmm. It's like this new album called Volta by Bjork. It's fucking crazy. Declare independence goes so hard. No, literally, a but sentence like that probably does. came out of my mouth. <laughs> Except no one said so hard back then. But yeah, <laughs> I probably said like Bjork is a bamf, um, <laughs> or whatever the fuck we said in high school, something like that. I know. I was talking to someone. Uh, I was talking to past and future guest Jason Pollard yesterday about. Because uh, we were doing Wrecking for a Dream, and I was like, "Yeah, I was like so into him in high school." And then I realized I was 2005, mm. and then I threw up a little bit in my mouth. It was mm. bad. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, but yeah, there's a lot of things that straight people like about this movie. They also love drugs. Yeah, straight people love drugs. See, here's the thing, and maybe I'm maybe this is like a little controversial to say, but gay people don't do heroin. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> gay people don't do heroin. We like no. don't do heroin. In, I don't injecting something. Yeah, myself? ew. No, no, absolutely not. I've done like that's every drug except for that one because I'm like, yes. no, absolutely not. That's gross. Yes. No, no, in, injection needle drugs are that's for doctors to give you, not yourself. So it's You're really funny. So I only relate, and it's funny that like Jennifer Connelly snorts heroin um, because it's like if I were to do heroin, 
That's what I would do too. I would snort. Mm-hmm. It. Oh, it's classier. Way classier. Um, but that's why we probably like are like oh, Ellen because it's like diet pills. Absolutely, could see that happening to me. <laughs> um, totally. That's well, like that's also the thing. It's like yeah, the doctor gave this to me. The doctor is right. Yeah. Oh my god. Ugh. I wish that my fucking pills made me skinny and also uppers. All my pills do is make me just think about all the times I've been embarrassing in public. Oh my god, that's me when I smoke weed. It's awful. I hate it. No, literally, like, one t- the last time I smoked weed, which was, like, a year ago, I, like, went on, like, a full, like, I looked in the mirror, and I was like, oh, my God, bitch, when you said this when you were in, like, fifth grade, that, like, literally mm-hmm. was, like, the most horrific thing that you've ever done in your life, and it's the whole reason why your life sucks. Yeah. It was oh, weird. all the time. I had this, speaking of looking at reflection, I was in my, my MetaQuest in the VR headset, and... The, like how it visually looks like, like you're in a room and there's like different like menus and stuff you can interact with like download games and shit but if you turn to your left the way that they like interface the avatar changing like the the avatar menu to where you can like change your avatar is a mirror no no and the, no. before you set your avatar it's just like this like gray void Mm-mm. and you it's fully end of annihilation Mm-mm. You look in the mirror, and also the thing is, is that, like, your hands, so you can see your the controllers that you're holding, because they, they, like, mimic, they look like your hands in the VR, and you control, like, they're flipped in the mirror. Like, whenever you control your, your right hand controls your left hand in the mirror, and your left hand controls your right in the mirror, it's so disorienting. I hate it. It's the worst thing in the world. Yeah, no. I, I feel like that's the biggest thing that VR is going to do to people, is this, like, very disorienting thing with our bodies mm-hmm. um yeah body image issues and vr it's gonna be a problem it's gonna be like oh. a massive problem in like 10 20 years I'm i've had it. i've had mine for a day and i already got them yeah it's it's gonna be bad especially if we the metaverse like really pops off more than it is uh because it's not um it's, not. it's like if we if we can be what we want to look like mm-hmm. in a vr isn't nope. that just like being on drugs in a way it is are we Sarah Goldfarb? Speaking of Sarah Goldfarb, she's the gayest thing about this. Yes! <laughs> the gayest thing about this movie is the evil Sarah Goldfarb that comes out of the TV, makes out with the TV host, yes. and goes, feed me, Sarah. Feed me, Sarah. Feed me, Sarah. Like, with oh. her fucking Bride of Frankenstein hair. Yes, yeah, so cunty. It's so kind. That's the gayest part. <laughs> the gayest part of the movie is also probably the part that like makes me feel the most uncomfortable, but like, <laughs> love it. Uh, it's yeah. so major. It's so sick. I love Sarah. She's a bad bitch. She gets yeah. addicted to drugs because she wants to fit in a red dress. Like That is same. the gayest thing I've ever heard. Same. Honestly, same. She talks She's... to her dead husband, Seymour. Mm-hmm. Um, she's got like a shitty son who like pawns off her TV every day, which by the way, it took me like a full 15 years to understand like what was happening with all that. Like I literally oh, yeah. <laughs> didn't understand how pawn shops worked probably until my twenties. So then I finally watched it this time. I went, Oh, mm-hmm. he pawns the TV and then she has to go back and buy it. Yep. And I was like, that's really fucked up. It, and he's up. gaslighting the fuck out of her in that first scene. It made me so mad. I know. And she locks herself in the bathroom closet. Yes. She gets so upset. Ugh, and that TV is chained up too. It's just, it's so sad. It is sad. Poor Sarah. Poor Sarah. She's been through so much, but She's she got a new through. TV and her hair looks great at the end of the movie. It does. It looks amazing. The short hair looks great the on short her. Short hair? Yeah, they cut out all the red. The red doesn't do much for her. Oh, also the way she says, I'm thinking thin. <laughs> I'll sneak another wedge of grapefruit. I love her. 
She's iconic. All the all the Greek chorus of neighbors up oh. front. The way they all incredible. like go like, oh, oh S A R A G O L D F A R B. So good. And they all go to the mailbox. I love them. They I love like them. Clap for her, mama. What her friend's zipping her up and she goes, I have a great diet book. Oh, so love good. It. All love of them. It. All the old ladies. <laughs> Honestly, if I ever did a Gaipa again, because I never get... <laughs> We've been on a Gaipa oh, yeah. so long because of... The, ugh, whatever, you know. But, like, if we did, I'm imagining... You know what? We're going back to doing it just for this. Because Hell I yeah. need the line of the women across yes. the, like, graphic design. Yes. The Greek Done. chorus of Brooklyn Jewish ladies. I love them. Yes. Ugh. Ugh. All right. Well... Speaking of gay stuff, I don't know. Uh, we're here to recommend a movie that's a little gayer than the one we just watched. Uh, we can't keep recommending Party Monster. Uh, I know. I was going to say, that's like, the, that's like the only thing that makes sense. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, what's another movie about like the struggling portrait of addiction? And I was like, Mommy Dearest. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. What did she say? Uh, no more wire hangers ever. Well, that. But she says... Uh, <laughs> Constantly embarrassing me in front of these reporters. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fucking good. Yeah, just watch Mommy Dearest. Why oh, not? Who God. cares? Oh, I need to rewatch it. It's been a really long time. And that's one of those movies that my my grandma used to make me watch uh, at like five in the morning because she was very much a gold Sarah Goldfarb kind of person. Like would just like kind of watch the same thing over and over again. I remember one time specifically, she woke me up at dead ass. I swear to God, three thirty a.m. To watch Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, yes. not on a regular TV program, not on TCM where it would make sense, but on the TV Guide Network. In the so you have your four quadrants of the TV Guide Network. The mm-hmm. bottom half is just the scrolling, the top left half is just like ads, and then the top right quadrant is a program. That was how I first watched Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. I love that. So good. One that's, of my favorite. That's movies. gay. That's a gay millennial like thing <laughs> right there. She unplugged my PS2 that was playing Final Fantasy X at the time uh, so that I could watch Hush Hush, Hush, Hush Sweet Charlotte. And they me. wonder why we turned out to be faggots. And they wonder. Because my mom us. showed me Mommy Dearest and she was probably like full because my, you know, she probably went full like, see, you don't have it so bad. <laughs> that My mom would 100% have done that. See, you don't have it so bad. Mm-hmm. Wire hangers, that would hurt. That would really hurt. We would never do that to you, Kirk. I love it. Yeah, watch my I remember, Dearest. like, there's this movie with Drew Barrymore where she, like, divorces her parents. Ooh. It's called, like, Irrecon- is- I think it's called Irreconcilable Differences, and it's the same yes. thing. I was like, you can divorce your parents? And they were like, yes, well, but that's never going to happen. <laughs> because you love us, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, bitch, why uh. you show me these movies? Love it. (laughs) Thanks, Mom. Thank you. We love you so much. All right. Well, speaking of loving, it's time for us to wrap this up so I can go eat some pasta. Yes. I'm very excited. My name is Dylan Garcia. You can follow me on Twitter at Dylan Garcia, on Instagram and Letterboxd at Garcia. And I'm Kirk Van Sickle. And you can find me on Instagram at Kirk underscore Van Sickle and on Letterboxd and Twitter at K-R-K-V-N-S-E-K-L-E. And you can also follow us on social media, Street People Movies, STR 8 PPL Movies. That's it, baby. And that's it. That's it, Girly Pop.
That shit gets stuck in my head for like ever. Like it's all the time. It's a catchy score. I'm like, Clint. I'm like, this is my life. When things are going bad, I'm like, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah. Before you go out to the clubs, you and the girl just put on the Reckoning for a Dream" score to just pop off. Oh, I love it. Mm. I love it. Imagine like a slow mo dance sequence, like a la the Bling Ring, to like the Reckoning for a Dream" score. <laughs> I, was, I was just imagining the voguing scene from Climax set to the Reckoning for a Dream" dun, score. Dun, 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 dun. You can't, no one can see me doing this, but. <laughs> That was I was like, is that Laomi? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> is that Willy Ninja? I'm definitely like one of those like white gays that like when I like do quote voguing, it's just me like flopping my arms. <laughs> but at least I don't pretend I'm good at it. That's like the there most embarrassing yeah. thing a white gay can do is when they like it's get on the dance horrible. floor yeah. and try to vogue. Oh my god, yeah. embarrassing. Awful. Oh Terrible. my god. Like stop, please. Please stop. Go back to Brooklyn. <sighs> Whoop! Whoop! Shots fired. Shot fired. All right, bye. Bye. Mwah. And now came talk. Talk.